you said like found a market fit before let's almost say just found a fit like are you fit to be a to be a founder it's okay like how 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 bad do you really want it yeah um, and if and if and if you're not really burning for it then just just go and do something else and have a have a an easier life hey folks garrett here it's been a while since we released a new episode of the most awesome founder podcast frankly we were a bit busy launching the inaugural Vejo Startup Accelerator. But the program was a success, and our eight cohort startup teams are off building the next great Vejo Ventures. That being said, our guest this week is one of our accelerator mentors, Nathan Evans. Nathan is co-founder of e-commerce startup Fullfin. He is also a director at the Founder Institute Munich, has 25 years experience in banking and fintech, and just so happens to be a Kellogg Vejo Executive MBA alum. Nathan and I had a really great conversation about his fascinating career trajectory from studying physics to the trading floors of London, from banking to product management to founding Fulfin. We even managed to talk about poker as a metaphor for entrepreneurship. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did the conversation. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Nathan Evans, thank you so much for joining our humble podcast today. It's great to have a, another inspiring Vehau alum join us. There you go. Thank you very much. It's very, very good to be here on a on a Friday evening. Nothing better. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. It was easier to say when there was a complete lockdown. Now, now I feel a little bit guiltier getting people to do this, but thank you again for joining us. Um, of course, you were a mentor for our accelerator program, so you've already had some opportunities to connect with our, our young founders with your alma mater. So thank you on multiple levels. But uh, today we're here to talk about you. Um, as, as I mentioned to you, one of the things we like to do on this podcast is highlight uh, inspiring entrepreneurs from the Vejo ecosystem. You certainly qualify. So I'm looking forward to hearing your story and where you come from and how you got to this place you are right now. So why don't we kick off with a little storytelling and why don't you tell us a little bit about your founder experience and journey? Okay, and thank you, sir. You will, you will make me blush having seen the people who have been on this podcast. Uh, it definitely feels like standing on the shoulders of, of giants because uh, there have been some great achievers there and I still feel we are we are very, very much at the start, even even though it's, it's three years in. You look back and you see so much achieved and then you look, you look forward and, you, and it's still the, the mountain to climb. But it's 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 really great to be invited. I'm picking up on that that Vehau invite as well to talk to the guys in the in, in the current accelerator. That is equally as inspirational for me and such a learning for me as it is for them. I think these guys are so hot, you know, and these these guys are so so passionate about it. I 
I would do that rather than sleep or do anything else. And that's pretty much what I end up doing, unfortunately. But thank you very much for, for bringing me in to meet the other mentors as well. They're such a great, a great group of people. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm Nathan. I'm British, which cannot be hidden away. I think I am also a German, a naturalized German since three years. And Germany's been a part of my life since 2000. And one, and I'm the co-founder of um, my company, Fulfin, Financing E-Commerce, with my colleague, uh, Freddie, founded in 2018. And when we're a fintech lender, we call it fintech 2.0. So really the, the new breed of lending, which is very, very much data, more data-driven than it's ever been before. Cool. Um, I, I'm very interested, and I want to dig more into Fulfin, but I know you come from a, a different background. Can you Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to prior to joining Fulfin, what were you what were you doing that kind of brought you down this path? I, th I think it's probably not standard, or maybe it is from somebody of, of my um, vintage. Um, you said that I, I, I may start when I'm four, but be, you know, being in my 40s, I'm going to avoid that because otherwise we'll be here all, all night. <laughs> but if we, I, I came from a non-academic background in the UK and then went, was the first one in my family to really go to university. And I just studied what I had a passion for at the time. Nobody told me you're supposed to do anything other than that, um, proper career planning. And at the time, it wasn't really so much there. So I studied physics in, in London at a good school called Imperial. And it was very, very much the case at the time that after Imperial, you went into research industry or you went, you went to the city, the city of London, so the finance area. And I was wowed by the bright lights in the big city and the, and the innovation and you know, it felt alive. It was, it was where the smart kids went and I wanted to be um, amongst them. So quite naively, again, just doing what I wanted to do. And there I found myself with, I think, a, a lot of luck, more luck than planning, ending up working on a, um, on a trading floor in a pit, effectively in the last days of open outcry. I was working in an interbank broker. Um, is that one year of my life, and I think I, I grew up 15 years in that one year because I figured out how this is this is how the world works, and this is how people work, and this is how people can make other people do other things. And um, very, very feel very privileged to have had that experience for a year. I learned so much, and I feel very, very privileged to have been able to get out after a year as as yeah. well because it can do it can do bad things to one's character. I think if you're there too long. Um, and in that time as a broker, one of my clients was a big German bank here in, in Bavaria, and they made a bid for me to go out and run a book there. So even though at that time, there's very little, very little call or even opportunity for people to think about going into startups at, at the point the smart kids went to investment banking or, or consultancy, um, then I... I went into investment banking and I, I ended up with a PL. So I'd gone from being a broker, which was a very, very entrepreneurial role, and the fact that you know you, you eat what you kill, that's that's it, to running a PL at a, a, a tier two bank, um, which was a, was the same again. Mostly we were remunerated by the bonus, but it was I think all of the good traders, it was just a way of keeping score as well. And that's what it always was. The, the love, the love of the game. And I remember I remember being out there with my my friends and and colleagues in in Munich on one evening so socially and I always got there late because I always used to stay on the training floor doing my analytics and getting into the system when everybody else had had left and turning up at 11 when people had been out uh, drinking the beers and from eight and I, I remember it to the day I said don't don't tell anybody this but I would do this for free you know don't tell my company this but this is this is so much me so I feel so alive and 
Later, I got the call back really into technology and product management, which um, I went from being a trader to building the trading system that I'd worked with. Came from having a, a very strong relationship to the guys and being a demanding user who were, um, when I wanted this thing changed, and at one point they said, we have a job in Switzerland in product management. We want, we want the guys who've been using the system. So that looked like a very interesting opportunity. And I came into product management, which I thought was totally it was so interesting. It was it's probably as close to being a founder or a, a head of a company as you can be if you do it properly without actually being that. But it's not quite your baby. And I think those years of my life that I that I was in Switzerland and in Stockholm do, doing that, it was wonderfully fulfilling, but maybe ultimately frustrating as well. And I, I cycled through a few experiences there, the Swiss Stock Exchange as well, rebuilding the lending market for these guys into a what has become a stellar startup in the meantime called Beekeeper from um, Switzerland as well, was in there early, but um, left to at the time to go to the Swiss Stock Exchange. You know, that team has gone on to do wonderful things as well and really got the taste for it. And during that period of time, I did my exec MBA at BHU and uh, Kellogg, and that opened my eyes to how many extremely smart people there are working in places that are not financial services as well. And got the got the founding book, but it still took me another another ten years after that until I founded the com- the company. Came back to Munich, um, into e-commerce, and then into uh, a young a young fintech before we founded Fulfin. And then finally met my co met the right guy, met Freddie there, perfectly complimentary, I think, to me. Um, we are different in nine ways out of ten, and the one way out of ten, one thing out of ten that we have in common is values and beliefs. You know, we're, he, he is as straight as can be and he's a rock and he has a great, a great work ethic and he's a very, very inter- intellectual in a positive way. And that, was, and that was it. And then we've been fighting the good fight ever since. I, uh, wow. I mean, there's so many things I want to unpack from that story that I found fascinating. And I was scribbling down a couple notes and I was running out of time to scribble them down because there were so many thoughts that I had. The, the first thing I want to, I want to jump on a quote something that you just said, which is something that I think about a lot in my career trajectory that has also been a bit circuitous over the past few decades. And it's the love of the game, right? This idea of the love of the game. I know we talked offline a little bit about our shared love for poker. Um, I find a lot of uh, interesting analogs between the game of poker and the game of entrepreneurship. Um, But what you were kind of talking about it a little bit in terms of data and trading and that context. But help me understand when you talk about that, maybe the thread that weaves through your career that you kind of gets you off that you love the most. What, what is that? Is it the numbers coming from a physics background? Is it the, the kind of gambling? Um, is it the risk reward ratio? What, what is it that gets you off the most out of all those experiences? No, it's, it's, not, the, it's not the numbers per se, not in, not in the nitty gritty 10th decimal point type of, of way. It's not gambling because I'm the largest critic of gambling, if it is of gambling in the sense of roulette, and I'm the biggest proponent of gambling in the sense of poker, which is playing a, a multivariate game amongst different players with incomplete information and being and being putting a decision where you a situation where you have to make a decision with without knowing all of the all, all of the facts, where you have to think Bayesian to have a, a chance as well. So what do I know and what can that help me work, figure out from what I don't know? And that's what gets gets me off, like solving 
solving problems and making the right decision. We, we said in poker, and I played a, a lot in Munich at, um, a few years ago, um, it was basically don't, don't be so results orientated. Like the, the cards come as the cards come, but it's about you keep making the right decision and you keep making sure that you have the frameworks to make that, that right decision and, and, you, and you will do good. You might run bad, you might run good, but you, you will do good in the end if you, if you do that. And that's, that's the challenge. That's the personal challenge, trying to take a really difficult to understand situation, a complex problem, making it a lot less complex and figuring out what the, what the drivers are. And yeah, that, keep, that keeps me young. And if I have to stop doing that and somebody starts making decisions for me, then I don't think I'll feel, yeah, it, it's, it's the time to keel over, I think. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, I love what you said about, you know, playing the games with incomplete information and leveraging the information you do have to, to kind of fill the gaps. But the other thing I, I heard you say, which is something that I think about a lot, and I have a few friends that are professional poker players, and it's the long game. You know, like some people think you go to the poker table and you play with the chips for that day. But the professionals have a chip stack that they play over the course of a year. You know, they're looking they're looking at the returns in the long game. I see entrepreneurship kind of like that, too. You know, some people think starting a starting a company is just this thing that you do one time and it's either boom or bust, you know, but but great entrepreneurs are collecting experience throughout their lifetimes, you know, um, you said it took you from when you got the startup bug, it took you 10 years before you founded your own company, even though you were obviously playing in other startups and scale ups along the way. What was that trajectory like? Was it uh, what, what did you feel held you back before you finally pulled the trigger? Was it was it finding your co-founder? Was it finding the right opportunity? Was it learning more? What was it that kind of made you pull the trigger? I don't think anything held me back. I think um, you know, poker is a metaphor for life as, as well. And you have tournament poker and cash poker. So let's say your life is a little bit like tournament poker that um, it's going to end. And... What is the correct strategy for the start of the game isn't the correct strategy for the mid game and the end game. And you need to know when to shift gears and you need to know when it's the last chance to push. And I, I was doing such interesting things with such interesting people. I mean, in Switzerland, working for the, the Swiss Stock Exchange with the Swiss National Bank on a project to rebuild the whole um, lending architecture of the, of the marketplace by which banks refinance. And that, that comes along once in a, in a generation. So I was so it was so cool to be involved in something like that, coming to back to Munich and being in, there's a company called Mercatio where I learned about e-commerce e as well. This is a 1999 founded company with absolute genius leadership as well at the strategic level that Amazon has tried to kill and not succeeded. Google has tried to kill them and not succeeded. And just to be around these guys and to be learning was was wonderful. And then you kind of figure out not getting, not getting any younger, the right level experiences. And it's, it's now time to push the button because the stars, the stars aligned. And the stars may have aligned five years earlier, but if, if not, I was, I was still very, very satisfied. I just knew one thing that if I didn't do it at some time, I would not be fulfilled. That would, I did not want that, um, that situation. You know, or let's say it's then choosing the path of least regrets. And I knew the biggest regret would be there on my deathbed going, I didn't find out. That's, that's stupid. So I don't, I find out and win or lose, I, I find out. Indeed. Indeed. I think that's a, a great way to look at life. We, we don't regret the things we have done. We regret the things that we haven't done, right? Um, it, your trajectory is interesting 
to me because, you know, I spend a lot of time with young founders and I talk to them about founder market fit. Are you the right person to build this company? Is Do you have the collection of network, experience, knowledge to position you to be the right person to build this kind of business? Now, Fulfin is a business that is lending for e-commerce companies. You started in lending, you went into tech, into product, you went into e-commerce. Was this kind of career trajectory just giving you the learning, setting you up for this opportunity? It sounds like a perfect stair step to get you where you are now. I mean, I previously said, you know, I was, I was naive in my education and my career in the sense that I didn't know you're supposed to go and work for McKinsey and or you're supposed to go to a Goldman, a Goldman Sachs trainee program because nobody particularly told me and I was too busy doing what I loved, which was physics at, at the time. But ever more, I, I figured out the only real good strategy for life is something that's based around fundamental pillars, your, your, your values, your passion, and you follow that and then react. You know, so it's, it's don't have, a, in, don't have a, a, a strategy that goes into the minutiae of what exactly how things are going to figure out. Because you know what, especially if you play enough cards or you work, or you work in training, you're going to figure out it doesn't come like that. You know, something comes and you're going to have to react. So um, I, was, I was figuring out, yeah, it's making a lot of sense for me to be in, in fintech and to have e-commerce. That's, that's going to put another block in, in place. And it, and it was all coming together in a very broad outline and it felt yeah I'm really 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 strong in this space really well connected as as well um and I have an have an unfair advantage via that at the at the right time I think it's it's very yeah very good what you said about founder market fit to express it like that as well and for these guys to ask themselves the question at the at the start especially I think with with finance and fintech as well it's probably a lot more relevant than other spaces it's probably easier spaces to go into if you're a young founder than enough. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think you probably experienced something similar to I did that I did, which is, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't come from a tech or a business background. I studied development economics. I worked in that space for a long time, 10 years consulting for the UN. And it was in that experience that I identified a clear problem that I thought that I could solve with tech, which ended up turning me into a, a technology founder that I really never had on my radar before. I'm curious, from this journey that you went through, how did you kind of get to the problem? Maybe you could talk about the problem that you're that Fulfin is solving, how you kind of identified that problem and, and what you guys are doing to, to address it. Very, let's kind of dumb it down as much as we can or simplify it. There are great young companies with great founders who have proven that they have product market fit via, um, via traction, um, who due to the cost model, the cost structure of the domain within which they're in, cannot possibly scale via retained earnings that, that need external capital. Um, they can't get that capital. And that is partially for regulatory reasons and is partially for um, a systemic um, naivety that there is within the financial services. Remember, young companies are, are difficult to understand. Asset-like companies are just not favored by banks as well. And what do we have with, with e-commerce? And this is a problem that we're, that we're generally solving, which is working capital and growth financing for young e-commerce companies. But what, I mean, what these guys are is de facto asset light, young, high growth, every, everything that 
that scares banks. And what do, what do they really need? They, they need um, short-term recyclable loans because they're looking to finance their cash conversion cycle of buying goods, importing goods and selling goods or investing in performance marketing to sell goods. That's what, that's what can help them, them grow. Um, and the lenders that we know generally, they don't like to do short-term loans because they have a certain cost base. Um, they are regulatory constrained from lending to young companies. So this kind of, that ticked the box for us as a problem because what we didn't want to do was subprime. Yeah. We did not want to lend, banks do 90% of things right in terms of understanding the, the credit profiles of, of their clients. And nine times out of 10, when the bank says this, this is not a lendable situation, it's perfectly, it's perfectly correct. And we wanted to find the opportunity, which was the one time out of 10 when it's not correct, when that decision has been made because of some system, uh, systemic bias that exists. I'm just thinking a little bit of our audience. And as you know, at Vehu, there's a lot of, there have been a lot of e-commerce businesses and marketplaces come out of this ecosystem. Um, many, many of them were capitalized with equity financing, right? And grew through series B, series C, series D and above. Is this, is this more of a, an earlier stage alternative to disrupting the cap table? How, how do you fit into the, to the capitalization model surrounded by equity finance for, an, for a younger company? Um, everybody's kind of happy when people talk about like a, a, mar a marketing mix and everybody's happy when you talk about a tech stack as well. So different horses for courses, different tools to solve different problems. And people, for some reason, because probably because money is fungible, think that all forms of financing are equally, almost equally suitable and equally applicable to every situation. It's just not true. One should think of a, a financing stack as well, or a financing mix at the very least. And um, I think one of the most naive decisions that a young founder or businessman can make is to use equity capital, to use growth capital, to finance working capital. So use equity is the most expensive form of capital that there will ever be, but it has it is for a reason. It is the most flexible form of capital that there ever be. It's the right capital for building the foundation of your business, for making long-term investments, which are going to pay off in, in years. Um, and working capital is effectively a when there is a proven money printing machine where if you tip money in up here, then in a few months, more money is going to come out down here, then you don't need to be paying the equivalent of hundreds of percent per, per annum to finance that with working capital. You, you've, sorry, with growth capital, you then need a, working, a provider of working capital. And, that's where, and that's, where we, that's where we come in. So it's not the one, 2% a year of banks. It's like a fee-based um, lending, but it's not the hundreds of percent uh, a year equivalent of an equity investment. And so people get to flexibly finance this money printing machine of buying and selling products or investing in performance marketing um, and to recycle that as often as they want to do and all the time just retaining ownership of their company and I think that's the big thing that's the pitch that not only we make but lots of alternative lenders make it's that we're we're an alternative to one could say that the mix some mix out of credit cards uh, an overdraft and certainly equity in investment we're one of those products that allows you to keep ownership of your of your company. Gotcha. And what is the kind of profile of the types of customers that you have? Is this you know a half a million million ARR type 
small business? Is it an early stage startup and growth mode? What what do you kind of what segment do you guys target? It's it's mm-hmm. I like the I like the question because it just gets me thinking about the guys as well. And you know, it's it's easy to visualize. And I say like they're the, the, the hoodie brigade in many ways. So they're yeah. extreme. They're extremely entrepreneurial, but they're the bootstrappers. Um, yep. These guys are, um, they've started with nothing. They, the smallest loans that we will do for a company will be a, thou- a thousand euros. We're not doing that to make money. We're, we're doing that as a type of acquisition trade at the end of the day. Like we want to get these guys early and get to know them because they scale extremely quickly. Um, and the, the biggest clients we have are eight figure a- ARR um, guys, but kind of six high six figures, seven figures. Um, that's that's pretty much usual one to five man teams, um, owner owner operators all the time, asset light, team light, everything outsourced. Um, yeah, that's that's our guys. Gotcha. You know, I, I was actually working with one of our startup teams in the accelerator accelerator today, and we saw a statistic that said that there's the most recent estimate we saw was there's 26 million e-commerce shops worldwide of like any kind of substance what what's the i mean i you guys are focused predominantly on germany or are you focused european wide what is your uh, what's your geographic reach currently we're in germany because the potential of that market is market is still greater than um our own capacity to to scale and it's another thing i think about growing a fintech business as well growing a fintech lender um it's not about growing as quickly as possible. It, uh, it's about growing optimally. You, ne- you need time to learn. You need time to train your model. You need time to have solid processes. So the, the, na- the nail it and scale it, I think, applies way more to fintech lending than almost anything else. And if you do that the other way around, you're, you're dead. And there's history, history is littered with cases of um, fintech lenders that have tr- done it the other way around and ended up falling flat on, flat on their face. Um, as a guy that works with a lot of startups, you know, I know you mentor and coach and whatnot. Does that are you are you saying that maybe the kind of more traditional lean methods are are altered substantially in that in your market? You said kind of nail it and scale it. You kind of got to get it right the first time, or do you? Is is am I understanding that correctly? Is that what you were kind of inferring that you have to you got to get it right or can you really get an early product out there, get feedback and, and evolve as you, you go like a, maybe the more traditional model of tech startups? Yeah, okay, I get the question. This is t- totally legitimate and you certainly can do that. And that's what we did in Fulpin. We were so iterative. You know, we probably were not financeable as an early stage team because we didn't have that typical founder background. Freddie was a previous MD of Deutsche Bank Austria and a PhD in, in finance and extremely astute, but his only um, startup experience was the company where we previously uh, met and we were both mid, like mid forties. Maybe we could have got, maybe we could have got something off uh, a deck, but we didn't need to either. We could finance it ourselves. And we started giving out small loans ourselves with a regulatory compliant alternative lending model out of our own pockets, basically, to, to figure this out. And we did our, you know, we did our learnings that way. We, um, we had a collateralization framework at the start where we, had the, we took collateral from our first clients and we had that collateral sitting in our office 
in in our incubator and we and we walked down to the post office and took that to and posted that off to amazon because i was very insistent that we understood the whole process you know that we had to to live it live it to the extent that we both got involved in e-commerce to as well and to having in investments and being the operations of, of young e-commerce companies what i refer to as in nail it and scale it is that if it Often, if you have a portfolio, a portfolio of loans, um, if the top, if your three biggest customers go bankrupt, and that then that would take you out, that's that's a bad situation to be in because that is something that cannot be ruled out given given economic cycles, given the possibility for um, defaults, frauds, and idiosyncrasy. So you have to kind of have portfolio strategy there. You you have to make sure that that you grow optimally so that cannot so that cannot happen gotcha okay i i, I want to ask one more question about e-commerce because i think this is something it's such a um part of the entrepreneurial culture in in this community as someone that probably has pretty deep insights into a lot of e-commerce companies in germany maybe project out a little bit. I mean, there's so much interesting things happening in this space. I mean, there are, co there are companies that are, you know, raising eight-figure euro amounts to buy up Amazon shops. There is this kind of amalgamation, Amazon eating the world, whatnot. Um, what's your take? What What's e-commerce, how is it going to change in the next five or 10 years? Do you do you have some predictions? Probably that. Predictions regarding how commerce as well is going to, how retail is going to change. So where I live in Munich, at, uh, at the München of Freiheit, right on the corner of the München of Freiheit, there's a big Karstadt store standing in there. That, that thing's not there in 10 years. It's, you, you, you have to walk around it twice to anecdotally figure it out and try and think of what sort of uh, square meter price there must be for retail space. And it, it can, it, it's a truism. It simply cannot exist. It, can, it cannot compete. And we love really being right at the heart of how retail and e-tail has changed over the last few years. Even e-commerce used to be a big man's game before. You know, it used to be so actually quite cost intensive to set these things up, to set up a shop and to, to then have enough products because you were, you were actually selling via a shop. And then there became the, the advent of market marketplaces, enabling people to start with one product, enabling people to kind of get have an investment of 2000 and and scale it from scale it from that and um, that I think is just that is going to be ever more the case it's going to be an ever lower entry value which is ridiculously low at the moment but it's going to be ever tougher for those guys to then make it so I think we're going to see like a lot more people trying and it's going to be easy to try and a lot more people failing because the bar is being the bar is being raised in the sense of the competencies that you that you need you, you can't bring the the 700th, the typical example used in under Amazon sellers is garlic presses. You know, mm. the, there's, there's there's no market demand for it. So, to be able to find a to find a good a good product, a good niche, and to be competent enough to to manage everything that you need to do, which is to design the product, launch the, launch the product, scale the, the product, um, it's going to take an even better quality of entrepreneur than we we currently have. Great, great for the consumer, but because more choice, more products, more more individualization um, about it. I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing uh, at all. It's just different to what we have now. 
Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I completely agree there. There is obviously this democratization of of e-tailers. You know, anybody can open up a Shopify account and and set up a, an online shop pretty easily these days and get to market in, in hours even for that matter. But then there's this gravitational pull of the behemoths in the room, right? The, the Amazons and, you know, in the U.S. it would be the Walmarts and the, these other big players that their gravitational pull is getting bigger and bigger. I've definitely talked to some people that think that, you know, it, the democratization movement's going to take over and things are going to kind of segment out again and the, the monopolistic big players won't be as powerful anymore. Other people think that everything gets eaten by the monsters. What do you think? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's too big to be eaten by the monsters. Even these, these roll-up guys that you were talking about before who are kind of buying up brands, I can't, I can't remember exactly what fraction of 1% it was of the, of the total e-commerce uh, landscape, as a total Amazon um, ecosystem that, that Fascio has managed to buy. But it is that, you know, it's, it's a fraction of a percent that they have bought with the billions of dollars that they, that they have in, that they have put to work. I mean, whilst we've been talking, so that like 10, so far like 10 new sellers will have registered on the Amazon Germany marketplace. And the roll-ups are good because what the roll-ups do is they, they give these entrepreneurs, these e-commerce entrepreneurs, um, an exit opportunity. And that didn't really exist to this extent before. The, the problem with e-commerce businesses is, especially the small ones, they were so tied to that owner operator and their skill set that it was like, maybe you know the, the, the paper, a, a Market for Lemons, which is the, um, the Nobel Prize winning paper about the used car market, saying that you can't possibly, you can't possibly sell a, a used car at its fair price because there's information asymmetry. So the buyer has to assume that he's getting, that he's going to get um, done over. So he has, to, he has to pay you the price for a poor quality car because it might be a poor quality car. And that's, I think, what it is with, with e-commerce, the multiples that people were able to realize for an Amazon business or a small e-commerce business were horrible compared to, to other business models just because people said, yeah, it works when you run it. But firstly, I don't know to what extent that's legitimate. And if I take it over, I don't have those skills that, that, that you have. And now you, you have the... Razor groups and the orange brands and the um, the heroes and fresh and pressure, and that's a, that's a perspective that these guys can have. That's great for us because to be relevant for these for these um, roll up plays, they need to reach a certain size as well. So they need they need financing until that point. Right, but yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at. What I was thinking is that must be a great. Uh, dynamic in the market for Fulfin, right? These companies now see exit opportunities. They don't necessarily have the growth capital to scale. That's where you guys fit into that ecosystem a little bit. Yeah, we've had we've had that case. We've had that case already. We've had guys of ours who have financed with us and then then exited. And it's not a it's not it's not ter- it's not a terrible thing for us as, at all because the market is is so good and it's just the challenge for us is to think about products and services that potentially we can now use to monetize that because we you know we own these guys financial profile from so early on that we have we have far better insights than than anybody else is is going to have between the winners and, and losers and now we're we're thinking okay what is there beyond lending perhaps that that could be interesting for these guys so we can we can help them exit well 
right? For a guy that said he's been kind of a data geek for 20 years, I could imagine you're licking your chops. There must be some fascinating, fascinating insights you see along the way. Yeah, yeah it's 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 data in a you know it's it's anecdotes, it's product. It's like product management talking to these guys and figuring out the um and and figuring out the the problems really. Gotcha. So Nathan, I want to switch gears a little bit because I know that you um, you like me, one of the things that you love to do when you're not building your own ventures is help other founders build theirs. Um, you, you've mentioned, obviously we talked about your role as a mentor for the Vehu Accelerator, but I understand you work with some, some other programs as well, supporting entrepreneurs. Yeah, since 2018 as well, I um, have been running the Found Institute program in Munich with a team of fellow directors. And it would potentially not be the correct decision for other people whilst building a startup. For me, it was quite clear that this was very much aligned. This was kind of our early stage customers that I was going to be able to help. And also, it's just, it's just a passion of, of mine as well. So I would be rather doing this than, than watching Eng- England play uh, Germany in the, in the, <laughs> was it the, quarterfi- the quarterfinal. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's so, it's an, have an immense amount of have an immense amount of pleasure from working with these these really early stage guys. We take we take them from idea to incorporation within the program. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, so I guess you'll next Tuesday evening you'll be free and available. <laughs> I think the whole world will be watching that game. That's for sure. But <laughs> I, I I I will probably watch so I can keep up right. with the com the, the conversation. But it's <laughs> no, you know, it it doesn't it doesn't get me hot in the, in the same way that seeing some of the guys that we have coming into the FI program or, or seeing the customers that we have with Fulfin and just seeing seeing them grow, seeing like really good guys get what they get what they deserve by putting in the work. Amen to that. There is nothing more enjoyable for me either to see that. When you work with founders, you know, are you focused more on finance i know we talked a little bit about you know capitalization and finance what what's kind of your niche when you when you support aspiring entrepreneurs the, the program per se covers all the bases like it's a 14 week program and we will cover everything from vision and, and vision and validation to uh, go to market product uh, development growth hiring um, equity and funding and into this program we will bring different mentors for each topic and experts. And often within this program and, and other FI programs around the world, I'll certainly go and mentor on, on equity and funding because I feel that's kind of a core competency. But you know, product product as, as well, I will I'll be more involved in in that and um, and any topics around I'd say the market validation. I think is like look at this this critical thinking before you before you go and invest a lot and make and make the mistake. Yeah being customer centric. Yeah. You know, you, you like me, I built a company in Germany 11 years ago, um, and then ended up moving it to the U S I came back a decade later. I've seen massive changes in the startup ecosystem here. What, you know, you've got your fingers on the pulse, at least in, in München of the activity. What have you seen? You've been here, uh, now, 20 years, how have you seen the ecosystem and the resources for entrepreneurs evolve over that time? I mean, I th- think myself, I, it wasn't even on my radar for the first of those 
10 years in Munich, I know, you know, 2014, 15, it was still, still very, very small. And then we, even as Fulfin, and in our early days, we uh, were subject to the realities of the growing interest in, in founding that we were in a, an incubator in, um, or an early stage incubator accelerator called Bear Kinds in Munich, which is really well known. It was set up originally as a game, uh, basically for gamers, and then, and then spread its wings a little bit. And we were there for two years, and after two years, we were kind of told, guys, it's been great having you, but you know, the next generation's coming. You, you, you've got to go and find somewhere else to live. And we know three, four years ago, this place was half empty. This place was half empty, and you could you could hang you could hang around for that time. So, this the actual interest that that is there, confirmed also by what we see in the FI program. We get ever ever larger cohorts um, who are coming in to start with, but because it's easier, the the quality is the quality drops as well. There are people that believe it's a lot easier than it is. And we have, um, for example, we have the founder of um, the founder institute, Adi Ochesi, who's who comes across um, sometimes, and this is you know, this is an eighty-hour-a-week guy on on holiday. Yeah. And somehow in in Germany, that still, if 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 you profess that, if you if you say this is this might be the level of dedication that you need to put in to build a company. And if you don't want to do that, it might be better if you don't start, then you, you might get hit with a wall of hate about, you know, it's important to have work-life balance. And this idea, I'm kind of, a, I'll be, I don't want to be apologetic about it, though I do believe you, you, it needs to be all-encompassing for you to have a chance. It is so, so difficult. And I think there are a lot of, lot of people coming in with a level of naivety, like blau I think we would say, wouldn't we? Yeah. And um, and they get we notice that in the FI program the FI program is, is rigorous, um, it, it's selective but it's also very rigorous as well and we lose seventy percent plus of all starters in that program because if you if you don't if you don't achieve what you have to you have to achieve we we have to ask the guys to leave and you know, and that program is nowhere near as tough as as being a founder. Yep. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I think um, there is, in recent years, there has been like a zeit, it's become a zeitgeist kind of topic, right? The sexy thing to do to be a founder. And I'm going to go start start a new venture and, you know, get this visibility and be the cool kid on the block as an entrepreneur. But I think the people that have done it a few times realize that it's a freaking grind, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. It's hard. It's exhausting. And like you said, it's, it's all encompassing for sure. And I think there is some balance that's required to maintain your sanity through that journey. I've certainly been sucked in deep, but, um, yeah, it's not something you, you do for shits and giggles. It's something, if you're going to commit, you better go all in for it. Yeah. I just advise people not to do it basically. And then, and then let them, let them convince me that they really, that, they can't do anything else. You know, that, that's the, the classical way I'll go about kind of validating. You said like founder market fit before. Let's almost say just founder fit. Like, are you fit to be a to be a founder? It's okay. Like, how 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 bad do you really want it? Yeah. Um, and if and if and if you're not really burning for it, then just just go and do something else and have a have a an easier life because it's. You said I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to quote Elon Musk. You at the <laughs> but what, what, what is the one about you know, standing on the 
that's the one that i used to but there's something there's something to that for sure yeah <laughs> it's it's not fun on many on on many occasions and um you have to be kind of masochistic to do it but there's if you are at that particular ilk then it's it's ultimately rewarding as as well like seeing a company seeing a company grow seeing your baby grow and I mean, I, I've looked at our, we have our, our monthly meeting internally, which I, I titled the, the big, fat, expensive meeting, because everybody's there. I say this meeting, everybody better bring their A game to this meeting because nobody's working for this half an hour. So, you know, or for this hour that, that we have. And I did a, like a retro of how Freddie and I, like the, the operating model we had when it was just us two, and kind of what we're doing now with um, our team of data scientists and our um, categorization algorithm and the bank transactions and our APIs pulling in the e-commerce data. So hang on, has this happened in two and a half years? Was that really, was that really <laughs> us? That that's that's kind of cool. Now we're doing something that other people don't don't do, but lots of blood, sweat, and tears on on the way. Right. Well, you said something earlier about you know you felt like you you had to do this like you would re regret it if you didn't. And you know I always think of when I ask founders like why you know always understand your why. And I call it the have to test, right? Like if, if you say, because I want to, because it sounds like something fun to do, there's a pretty high probability that you're not going to make it through that journey. I, we had Steve Blank on the podcast a while back, and he said he would get students at Stanford. They said, well, you know, I got an offer from the big consulting firm, but I'm also thinking about starting a startup with my, with my roommate. And he says, stop right there. You know, if it's a if it's a choice, you shouldn't be doing it. And I think it's this idea of like if if it's just something that you absolutely have to do. And, you know, I've I've built four businesses, but I have stopped building a, almost 10 of them early because I got to a point where I realized, OK, here's here's where I'm at. I know what's ahead. Is this something that is going that I am intrinsically motivated, inspired to do? Is it something that I just absolutely have to do? And if the answer is no, I'll let it go, you know. And uh, it's hard sometimes. It takes having done it a few times to know. Back to the poker analogy, the Kenny Rogers: no one to hold them and no one to fold them, you know. But uh, um, I think a lot of people get caught in the hamster wheel, thinking this is something they want to do, don't have that deep intrinsic motivation to do it and will eventually run out of fuel. I think it's, it, it's the mindset. It's the, um, I, mean, I'll, I'll, I'll guess I, I quote myself to say again, the love of the game. That's, the, that's as far as I'm concerned, the only reason to do it, because if you focus on anything else, um, you, you're going to be disappointed and you're not, you're not going to stay the curse. And the quote, I, the quote I like is the Hillary quote for, for climbing Everest. You, mm. Unless if you know, why did you climb Everest? Because it was there. It was there. Yeah. What, what else am I going to do? You know, <laughs> and and that, that has to be it at, at the end. What else am I going to do? And if you if it isn't that, if you if you don't say that to your, yourself, then there's far more, there's far better ways to find fulfillment in in life. Indeed. Well, Nathan, I think you just named the episode of this podcast, The Love of the Game with Nathan Evans. <laughs> um, so I like to wrap up all the episodes just asking three kind of quick questions that I ask all of the entrepreneurs that come on here. Um, 
So I'll start with one that I'm really looking forward to hearing from you because you have had a really interesting career path that seemed serendipitously to take you to where you are today. So in your in your years of experience in the finance world, in the product world, as an entrepreneur, what can you point to anything that you learned in that journey that you like to share with younger entrepreneurs or you wish you had known earlier on in your journey, a little nugget of wisdom that you could partake, provide to to our audience? Yeah, I, I've, I've learned so much. And maybe the love of the game is, is also the love of learning. That's it. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever say, I wish I had done that differently. Don't ever, be, don't ever be in a situation where you are going to say, I wish I had done that, except as the poker player, you're not going to, or, you know, it's, some things are going to go well. Some things are, go, are going to um, go poorly. Try to make the best, possible decisions you can given the information that, that you have at the time and the only way to do that is to is to keep it as simple as possible and follow your passion uh, that that's that's it everything everything else you're not going to you're going to end up running the risk of, of being exactly wrong rather than approximately right i love this expression as well you know and if, and if you just follow that what you know you enjoy and you know drives you you can't you you can't be wrong so that's the only Thing I would say for people, if it's that clear in your heart, you need you need to do that. That's what you do, and it, it won't be a mistake. Right, right. Well, you got to lose some hands to win the game, right? There was a lot of poker metaphors. You got to you got to give action to get action, and yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, so I've always found that I can. Uh, understand a lot about a person by what book is on their bedside table or what's on their bookshelf. Um, do you have anything you're reading now or something that you've read that you would recommend? You know, I, obviously I saw some of the podcasts before, so I knew this, I knew this was coming up. And then the question is like, do, do you want to try and make yourself look smart? <laughs> or, 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 or are you going to go for kind of brutal, brutal honesty and uh, try to be honest? So what I, what I am, um, reading which i love is um a book called anti-fragile by by talib mm. i love i love yeah. everything that talib i love how the guy thinks i i love the um the the frameworks that he uses and applies i think it's it's similar to books like um uh, free economics as well it's the same it's the same type of looking at it with an economist or a physicist rationality rationality mm. of it reducing it the, I'll do the Elon, the Elon Musky um, um, fake it down and reason up mm. kind kind of thing. So that that book has so has so many learnings in, and I think especially for startups as as well. Like how can how can you build a company that is anti-fragile? And he definitely he defines anti-fragile as being an an organization or entity that benefits from shocks. So the the opposite the opposite of fragile is not robust. The bust is something that doesn't mind if there are shocks or not, but these shocks in, in the startup world, they're, they're kind of learnings and you need to be able to survive the learnings. If your learning kills you, it's not, it doesn't, doesn't help. So that's, I think that is great. I'm, I'm rereading uh, the theory of games and economic behavior by Neumann, just because mm -hmm. it just has like one chapter in about poker as an idealized game. And I just need to keep reminding myself about, even if I don't play much anymore, I need to, remind myself uh, about how simple things can be if you do that and and being a being a daddy the the, the the guilty pleasure in life is i get to read all the kids books 
yeah. game maker. <laughs> and uh, and we just had the, the the BFG, the big friendly giant by Goldar. Um, oh, nice, nice. Yeah, it's just such a beautiful and eloquent use of language for 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 children, and there's so much in you know it's so inspiring and the, the fantasy and the vision, and you kind of see there. You know, to see my little daughter's eyes light, it's kind of trying to get that passion in yourself and the people around you who 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 work for you, and to see what lang- what what language can do, and yeah. Uh, that's yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I think. Uh, last year I had Martin Heibel from uh, Ciara, who's also a Munich entrepreneur. And I think he has f- five children. And his answer was, I haven't read a book for myself in like 10 years. He's only read kids books. So. And then I asked him a next question and I got a similar answer, which is um, uh, a little more 21st century question. But what's cycling on your playlist? Yeah, it's not a, it's not a very 21st century answer, I think, because... Um, <laughs> I, I I I got hooked in by uh, the Cure when I was a young a young boy, yeah. and there's a I think there's a lovely quote on so I, I love language as well and the the wonderful eloquence of, of some prose, and I think they have a Shelley quote on one of their albums that says, um, "We look before and after and pine for what is not. Our sincerest laughter with some pain is fraught. Our sweetest songs are those that tell of saddest thought." And it's just beautiful, yeah. It's just a uh, and some, you know, so there has there has to be even music. There has to be there has to be emotion, and there has to be there has to be passion there. So that's the, that's the one thing. And then it will be probably mindless techno when I go running. Just something nice. that's got that. <laughs> you, you, you kind of need the other side, the other side of that. Something that's just gonna push you mindlessly with the with the beat. Yeah, nice. Well, you had me at Robert Smith's haunting and poetic voice. That's my my generation as well. So. Oh man, Nathan, what a what a lovely conversation. We talked about so many things near and dear to my heart. Um, really appreciated hearing your story, hearing some nuggets of wisdom. Um, such such a pleasure. We hope to have you back here at Vehau again, imparting that on some of our founders in the years to come. But it was a uh, it was a joy. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. I, I, I love being back at school and I love now being involved in the accelerator as a, a mentor as well. So you know, as long as there are, um, as long as the 24 hours in the day haven't, haven't been filled and I can, I, can make, I can make it work, I'm very, very glad to be, to be involved and look forward to speaking to you again. Sounds great. Thanks for having you. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Well, folks, that was Nathan Evans. Vehau alum and co-founder of e-commerce financing startup Fullfin. Stay tuned for our episode next week when we introduce Christoph Kreuz, founder of the Siemens Innovation Ecosystem and co-head of Siemens Entrepreneurship Bootcamp. Bis nächstes Mal.